Church family, I love you. I thank God for you. It's so good to be here. There's nothing I'd rather do than declare God's word and the glory of Jesus to you this morning. Before we meditate on the scripture together, let me just briefly put this sermon in the context of my life right now so maybe you can get a sense of just how precious these truths are to me in this season of my life right now. On Friday, we buried my father-in-law, Papa John. He was a great man. He'd been a father figure to me for almost 25 years. He was the absolute perfect father-in-law. You know, there's not a lot of teaching on what it means to be a father-in-law. A lot of books and sermon series on what it means to be a good parent, but not a lot on, on what it means to be an in-law. But Papa John showed me how to be a good father-in-law. The only thing he really ever expected of me was to love his daughter. That's it. Nothing else. No pressure to be or do anything else supported me, encouraged me in every other way. And his life and his legacy and the way he finished well have me considering my own life and my own legacy and my own desire to finish well. Well, add to that what is coming this week. This coming Saturday, we'll move my firstborn child to college. My baby girl is being sent out. And while hopefully this isn't the last of my sermons that she hears, this will be the final one before she begins this new journey. Aside from my wife, no one has listened to more of my sermons than my daughter. For 18 plus years, she has heard me preach. And I know that sounds awful. <laughs> I'm positive my family has great rewards laid up for them for enduring my, my sermons for so long. But that thought that this sort of will be this last sermon before she transitions into this new phase of her life has me considering what it is she's heard from 18 plus years of my sermons. I'm positive she will only remember a handful of specific sermons, but my question is, will she remember, what will she remember about the tone and the focus and the main point of my preaching as she faces new challenges. So I'm in this transition between the past and the future. It's called the present. <laughs> and all of us are here. Even if not as dramatic as I'm describing in my present for me right now, all of us are always existing in this transition between past and future. For you, it may be a new school year starting just a week or so away. It may be a new job. It may be a, a move. It may be a new relationship. It may be just a new phase in your life. But all of us exist between this transition between past and future called the present. And so recognizing that, letting that weight fall on us, this sermon is a sermon I hope that will help us to evaluate and to consider and to refocus in this sort of already but not yet present moment of our lives. And so to that end, join me in one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, 
The book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. As we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together, and as something of what I hope is a summary of all that I would love for my life to be and for my preaching and my pastoral ministry to be, to try to, to, try to summarize that in one sermon, here's, here's what I want us to do, to hang our thoughts mainly on two verses in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. So follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11 so we get the whole passage here. But here's what Paul says. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When you boil it all down, this passage forces us to ask ourselves a question. The question this passage asks us is, how much is Jesus worth to you? How much is Jesus worth to you? Now listen, nothing in all creation is as valuable as Jesus Christ. Nothing. No amount of money, no amount of fame, no amount of comfort, no amount of good health, nothing even compares to the value of King Jesus. He is more precious and more beautiful and more breathtaking than everything our hearts have ever longed for. He is more beautiful than all the diamonds in all the world. He is more precious than five trillion dollars. Jesus is more thrilling than a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth inning or a triple overtime buzzer beater. He is more wonderful than 10,000 sunrises and sunsets. He is the bread of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the good shepherd, the savior of the world, the sovereign Lord of all creation. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is fully God. And as God, He took upon Himself a human nature and lived a sinless life. He died as a substitute for sinners. He was buried and He rose victoriously from the grave. And the empty tomb, which no one has ever been able to give an adequate explanation for, is powerful evidence that Jesus is undisputedly the most valuable being in all the universe. He is. But the question this passage gets at is how valuable is Jesus to you? 
You see, just because someone or something is valuable doesn't mean that we actually value it. Just because something's valuable doesn't mean we actually value it. And so Jesus is immeasurably valuable, yes. But the question is, how valuable is He to you? How much is He worth to you? And in this passage, Paul uses his own testimony to get at what it means, what it looks like to value Jesus above all things. Notice in this passage, Paul makes crystal clear how vitally important the resurrected Jesus is to him. The risen Jesus is absolutely everything to Paul. This passage is one of the clearest explanations of Paul's obsession with the value of Jesus. Paul has seen Jesus as so beautiful that he has literally been ruined for everything else. He has tasted something so sweet in Jesus that all the pleasures of this world have lost their flavor. Paul has seen something so breathtaking in Jesus that all other pleasures has lost its attraction to Paul. And that's my prayer for my own heart and for all of us this morning. No matter who you are, or where you are, or where you're from, or what transition between past and future you're in right now, I pray that God would open your eyes to see the value of Jesus the Christ in such a way that you are ruined for all lesser things. That you would count everything else as rubbish compared to King Jesus. And so I just want to help us stare at the life-changing truths of these verses in hopes that as we see Jesus, we will be overwhelmingly captivated by Him and His beauty. That we will see a treasure so superior to everything else we've ever valued that our sin and our idols would lose all of their allure. The main truth I want you to see in these two verses, the burden of this teaching is this. Jesus is more precious than all the world's treasures. The burden of this passage, the burden of this sermon for your present life is Jesus is more precious than all the world's treasures. Notice the truth in the text. Let's just stare at the text for a while. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul has listed some privileges and achievements that he once treasured. So Paul makes this whole list of things that he once valued. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He kept the law blamelessly. He said that if ever there were anyone who could boast in themselves, it was him. These were the things Paul once counted on, he trusted in to make him right before God. But something dramatic has happened for Paul. His entire value system has been turned upside down, or you could say right side up. Look carefully at verse 7 and notice first the contrast. But, he says, I had all of these things. I had all of these things going for me. All of these things to trust in. But, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The word gain and the word loss are accounting terms here. It's as if, it's as if Paul has a ledger in front of him with two columns. One column is labeled gains and one column is labeled losses. 
and all the things he once valued, all the things in the gain column of his heritage and his hard work, he says he's transferred those to the loss column. Paul now puts no confidence in those things. Paul now says, all I once held dear, I consider worthless now. Notice the verb in verse 7. The verb counted. That verb is in the past tense. Paul is referring to a past completed action. I think he's referring to the moment of his conversion when he realized for the first time that Jesus was more valuable than all the works he had worked to accumulate, than all the things he had trusted in. In other words, I think verse 7 is providing for us something of an explanation of what it means to become a Christian. We learn something here about the nature of saving faith from verse 7. To become a Christian, a person must relinquish all the things they're trusting in and they must cling to Christ alone. Saving faith is seeing and embracing Jesus as the greatest gain of all. So this is a picture of biblical repentance. Repentance is taking all the things you trust in and writing loss over the top of them so that you embrace Jesus as the greatest gain in all the world. So listen, a person does not become a Christian by simply walking down an aisle, by repeating a prayer, by living a good life, or by being baptized. A Christian is one who glories in Christ by treasuring Him as the only gain in their right standing with God. Now listen, verse 7 would have been shocking to the original readers of this letter. Paul is making a radical declaration about the worthlessness of all human means of acceptance with God, of pursuing acceptance with God by any other means, by any heritage, by any works. Paul is saying all of those things are worthless. They're all counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But what Paul says in verse 8 might be the most shocking and challenging thing Paul ever wrote. Look what he says in verse 8. So verse 7 he says, whatever gain I had it I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Notice that verse 8 is an expansion of verse 7. Think of like a funnel where the very smallest tip at the bottom and then it gets bigger as it goes higher. Verse 7 is like the tip and verse 8 expands on verse 7. Notice the word indeed at the beginning of verse 8. This is an indication that Paul understood that what he's about to say in verse 8 is indeed shocking. If you have the NIV, verse 8 begins with the phrase, what is more? It's as if Paul's saying, you think what I said in verse 7 is radical? Indeed, wait until you hear this. And so Paul is saying more in verse 8 than he said in verse 7. How so? How is verse 8 more than verse 7? Well, notice a few ways that verse 8 expands on what Paul says in verse 7. First, notice the change in verb tenses. In verse 8, Paul uses the present tense. I count. 
So not only has Paul counted all as lost for the sake of Christ at some point in the past, verse 7, but he presently, right now, counts everything to be lost. And so verse 7 describes a past action, and verse 8 describes an ongoing attitude of his heart throughout his Christian life. He lives continually counting everything as loss for Christ. Notice what we learn from this statement. We learn that the Christian life is not just about a past action where we made a decision for Christ. No, the Christian life is about a continual, ongoing treasuring of Jesus. We don't make a one-time decision for Christ to value Him and then proceed to value everything else for the rest of our lives. No, each and every day, even though imperfectly, Jesus must be the continual treasure of our hearts. Can you say this with Paul right now that you count everything to be lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord? Christianity is not about a past decision. It's about having a present passion. It's about having a present obsession with the value of Jesus. Also notice what Paul counts as loss expands from verse 7 to verse 8. In verse 7, Paul counts those things he used to see as gain to be loss. Verses 4 through 6. And so somebody could read verse 7 and say, yeah, absolutely, we should count all those things that we're trusting in to be lost, but that's it. No, in verse 8, Paul makes clear that he now counts everything as loss for Christ. What does everything mean? Does everything mean just a few things? Everything means everything. Nothing is excluded in verse 8. I don't think Paul is exaggerating here, and I don't think he's overstating for effect. In fact, the reason I know Paul is not exaggerating is because he expands on this idea even further in verse 8. How could he go further than saying everything is loss? Well, notice he says that he counts all things not only as loss, but as rubbish in order to gain Christ. See, Paul intentionally switches from a strong word, the word loss, to an even stronger word, rubbish, in order to highlight how he presently views everything outside of Jesus. The word rubbish is a translation of the Greek word skubala, which is as strong of a word that Paul had available in his language. Skubala literally meant dung, excrement, refuse. This word was used in some extra-biblical sources to refer to things like half-eaten corpses on the side of the road or to piles of animal droppings. Could it be any clearer how Paul viewed everything other than Jesus? See, a Christian is one who glories in Jesus, I get that from verse 3, by treasuring Jesus only. A Christian is one who's been so captivated by the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the Savior, that everything else in all the world is viewed as a pile of trash. Paul, here is a real-life example of what Jesus taught us in Luke 14, 33. If you think Paul's being radical here, just listen to where he got this from. Luke 14, 33, the Savior says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says we're not his disciples 
if we don't count everything as rubbish for His sake. Now, we've got to wrestle with an important question here. And that is, how can Paul say everything is rubbish to him? I mean, doesn't he mention other things in his letters that bring him joy, that bring him pleasure? And the answer is yes, he does mention other things. So, how are we to see this? What about us? Are we to literally consider everything as rubbish? What about our families? What about our jobs? What about our church family? How can Paul say everything is counted as lost when there are so many good things that God has given to us? Is it okay to value anything other than Jesus? And here's the answer. Everything we value, we must value for Jesus' sake. Everything we value must be valued for Jesus' sake. Every treasure we have must ultimately be treasured for the sake of Christ. Here's how St. Augustine put it in his confessions. He's praying to God and Augustine prays this. Try to get this. Augustine says, He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which he loves not for thy sake. He loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee which he loves not for thy sake. In other words, what Paul, what Jesus, what Augustine are saying is we don't really love God if we love anything else unless we love it for His sake. All of our loves must ultimately be a love for the One who gives all of those good gifts. Friends, our love for spouse and children, and parents must ultimately be an expression of our love for Jesus. Our love for our church family must ultimately be because we love Jesus. Our love for sports or music or books or whatever else must have love for Christ as its ultimate goal. So if we treasure anything other than Jesus, we are idolaters. Apart from Jesus, everything and everyone loses their value. But if pursued for the sake of Christ... Everything is immediately given value. So the only way to experience the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus is to write scubala, trash, over every other treasure that is not for the sake of Christ. Now, because I desperately want this for myself and for you to value Jesus this supremely, I have to ask this question. How does this happen? How does how do verse 7 and 8 happen in a person's life? How does a person move from treasuring all the things and all the stuff of this world to treasuring Jesus this supremely? What was it that Paul saw in Jesus that so radically transformed his values? Now obviously, let me say, this is a sovereign work of God. Only God can do this. But I think in this text, Paul points us to some ways that this happened in his life. He points us to, to how God did this in his life. And I think there are two main answers in this text. Two main ways that Paul was able to see this. And I want to I focus on them for just a few minutes. Here's the first way. These are going to be long. If you're taking notes, I'm sorry. But this is what the text says. First, Paul counted all as rubbish for Christ because he saw 
that Jesus is the only means of right standing with God. Paul counted all as rubbish for Christ because he saw something. He beheld something. And that is that Jesus is the only means of right standing with God. Notice verse 9. Verse 9 contains Paul's theology of justification by faith in Christ alone. Paul says that he wants to gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul wants to gain Christ, which he defines as being found in Christ clothed in the spotless righteousness of Christ. Paul wants to be united to Jesus. And he says that his works will never get him there. His works will never make him right with God. He will never be accepted by God by what he does. And so, what does he do? He hides himself in the righteousness of Jesus. Notice how Paul describes his own lack of acceptable righteousness. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Paul knows that law-keeping will not get him declared right by a holy God. And so Paul puts no confidence in his flesh. Notice also where the righteousness comes from in verse 9. Paul wants the righteousness that is from God. True right standing with God is a gift from God based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so friends, here's the glorious gospel. Here's the gospel we're going to proclaim in the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Because of our sin, we were drowning in the immensity of our debt. We had racked up a debt so immense that we could never possibly ever pay it back. And Jesus not only canceled that debt by paying it in full with His own blood, but He also transferred the immensity of His wealth to our account. We have access now to the entire sum of the righteousness of Jesus. And to value Jesus is to stand on His righteousness and not on our own bankrupt, filthy righteousness. Friends, when you stand before a holy God, when you stand before the holy God of the universe, and all of us will, please do not bring Him a list of your accomplishments and achievements. When you stand before the Creator, bank all your hope of acceptance on the all-sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus is so valuable. This is why He's so beautiful. This is why He is so precious. This is what Paul saw that allowed Him to count all as rubbish. Jesus is the only means of right standing with a holy God. But secondly, how does this happen? How does this happen in our hearts? Secondly, Paul counted all as rubbish for Christ because he tasted the supreme value of knowing Jesus. Paul was able to count all his rubbish for Christ because he had tasted the supreme value of knowing Jesus. So in verse 8, Paul says the reason he counts all his loss is because of the surpassing worth of knowing the Lord. And then he expands on this treasure of knowing Jesus in verses 10 and 11. Paul says, Why does he count all his loss? Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, 
becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All of Paul's goals in life and death were thoroughly Christ-centered. Paul wants to gain Christ, be found in Christ, and know Christ. This is Paul's glorious ambition. This is his magnificent obsession to be completely caught up in a relationship with the most valuable being in all the universe. Notice particularly how Paul wants to know the Savior. He says he wants to become familiar with the Savior's resurrection power and hope-giving sufferings. He wants to know Christ in His resurrection and he wants to know Christ in His suffering. How valuable is Jesus to you? How valuable is knowing Jesus to you? Is this your passion? Is this your obsession in life? Do you live to know Jesus? As you consider the present, this transition between past and future, is this your passion? To know Jesus? This is what a Christian is. A Christian is one who values Jesus by pursuing this intimate fellowship with Him. Jesus is an inexhaustible treasure of beauty and worth and glory. And we will never get to the bottom of the infinite worth and value of Christ. And so no matter how well you know Him, it should be your aim in life to know Him better. To know Him more. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows King Jesus. There is no sweeter knowledge in all the universe than the personal knowledge of Jesus the Savior. We will only consider all as rubbish when we taste the sweetness of knowing Jesus in His resurrection and in His sufferings. Here's how Paul was able to write loss and trash over everything else in his life. He had tasted the sweetness of knowing Jesus. Now the final question I want to ask of this text is this. What does this mean practically? What does it mean practically to count all as rubbish for Jesus' sake? What does this look like in our lives? When we see Him as the only means of right standing with God, when we taste the sweetness of knowing Him, what will be the results in our everyday lives? And by way of application, I have four statements that I pray that you'll adopt as something of a framework for the rest of your life. No matter what your present situation is in, I pray you would evaluate yourself by these four application statements. Number one, at the most basic level, to count all as rubbish for Jesus means that if I ever must choose between anything and Jesus, I will choose Jesus. Here's the declaration of a person who has seen Jesus, who has tasted the sweetness of Jesus. That if ever I have to choose between anything and Jesus, I've already made the decision. I choose Jesus. This is the declaration of someone who says, I will never renounce my Savior no matter what I'm threatened with. 
I would rather be tortured and die than renounce my greatest treasure. Friends, this declaration is so freeing. This is so freeing. The decision has already been made. When I'm forced to choose between anything and Jesus, I choose Jesus. I don't even have to decide anymore. He is my greatest treasure. And our brothers and sisters around the world have to face this question day in and day out. And I, I'm not a prophet, but I imagine our day is coming in America that we'll have to choose between our life and between Jesus. Will you choose Jesus? Is He that much of a treasure to you? Number two, to count all as rubbish for Jesus means that I will relate to everything else in my life in a way that shows it is not my treasure. Here's what it looks like to count all this rubbish. It means that I'm going to relate, I'm going to handle, I'm going to deal with everything else in my life in a way that makes clear that those things are not my treasure. I will not treat anything in my life in a way that would communicate that I love it more than I love my Savior. I'll seek to handle money in a way that makes clear that it is not my treasure. I will not act like a particular possession or a particular person is the most important thing to me. I will live in this world in such a way that no one can even begin to accuse me of loving anything more than Jesus. Ask the people who know you the best, what's my greatest treasure? Ask the people at work, Ask the people at school. Ask the people on your sports team. Ask the members of your family. What do you think I treasure most? What does my life show that I value more than anything else? And by the way, if you treat any person in your life as if they are your greatest treasure, you will crush them under the weight of that. That is a recipe for a disastrous relationship if you treat them as if they're the most important thing in all the universe. Because only Jesus can handle that kind of weight. Only Jesus is that valuable. Third, to count all as rubbish for Jesus means that if anything is taken from me, I will not lose my joy because I cannot lose Jesus. This is what it looks like practically to count all as loss. It means... If anything is taken from me, I will not lose my joy because I cannot lose Jesus. Jesus has promised to never leave or forsake me. He has promised to keep me to the end and therefore I can never lose my treasure. The world can take anything from me. The world can take everything from me. But the world cannot take anything from me that has ultimate value, and therefore, I always have reason for joy. If my identity is taken from me, if power is taken from me, if reputation is taken from me, if possessions are taken from me, if health is taken from me, I will not lose my joy because my greatest treasure is always for me and with me. Number four, and finally, to count all this rubbish for Jesus means that I will put everything through this filter. Does this help me? Or does this hinder me in my pursuit to know Jesus? Whenever we see Jesus as 
the only means of right standing with God, whenever we taste the sweetness of knowing Him, we will want to put everything in our lives through this filter. Does it help me or does it hinder me in my pursuit to know Jesus? Does this activity, does this television program, does this movie, does this website, does this book, does this sporting event, does this whatever help me or does it hinder me? in my pursuit to know Jesus. If I'm counting all as rubbish in order to gain Christ, why would I allow any rubbish to weaken my affection for Him? Friends, this is why I said verse 8 might be the most shocking thing Paul ever wrote. Because none of us values Christ like we see here in verse 8. I certainly don't. Which is why, friends, we need to cling to the cross of Jesus where our Savior smashed all the idols of our hearts by His death. Friends, Jesus didn't lay down His life on the cross so that we could go on valuing all the stuff of this world. He died and rose again in order to free us from all lesser treasures. And so in verse 8, Paul models for us the essence of the Christian life. A Christian is one who sees Jesus as more precious than all the treasures of this world. So Paul leaves us in a challenging example in this passage. We're to treasure Christ supremely. We're to treasure Christ so supremely that we count all else as rubbish for His sake. We're to trust Christ alone for our right standing with God. And we're to pursue knowing Christ above all things. This whole passage reminds me of a parable Jesus taught in Matthew 13, 44. Jesus said this, He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. <laughs> this man found something that was so valuable that he was willing to give up everything he owned in order to have that treasure. It wasn't a burden for him to sell everything. He didn't part with it with clenched fists. No, it was a joy to sell everything he had because the treasure was so valuable. Jim Elliott once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In other words, it is always a good deal to part with the temporary in order to gain the eternal. Or to state it the opposite way, it is foolish to neglect the only thing that is truly valuable to hold on to things that have no value. So I'll end with the question that we began with. How valuable is Jesus to you? How much is Jesus worth to you? Can you say with Paul right now that you count everything as rubbish in order to gain Christ and be found in Him and to know Him and the power of His resurrection. Is that the heartbeat of your life? The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to declare that we value Jesus more than anything else. Because in the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that our sins were paid for in full by the death of Jesus. And we are reminded that Jesus promised to return and to dwell with His people forever. So if Jesus is not your treasure, the Lord's Supper is not for you. Paul warned us to not partake in an unworthy manner. 
And so if you're not following Jesus in the context of the local church, if you have not been baptized in obedience to Jesus, then please do not partake of these elements. But rather just utilize this time to pray and ask God to radically change what you value. But if you're following Jesus with his people, then we invite you to proclaim what you value. Proclaim your treasure by partaking with faith in Jesus. The music team's going to come. The deacons are, who are going to serve the elements are going to come to prepare to pass these elements out. But as, they, as the music team plays this song, Jesus, thank you, this is an opportunity for us to evaluate. For us to ask ourselves this question, what do we value? How much is Jesus worth to you? Take this time for self-examination. Take this time to consider what you value, what you treasure. Uh, just a couple words of instructions. The elements are double stacked, which means the bottom cup has the bread and the top cup has the juice. They're stacked on top of each other, so take an entire stack when you take one. Also, this is something new. If, if you would like a gluten-free elements, there are about four or five in each tray right in the middle. Uh, if that would serve you, if that would help you partake with your church family, we're happy to provide that for you. It's labeled really clearly gluten-free on the top of that prepackaged element. So as the deacons come to pass out the elements, let's examine ourselves and what we value.